0: Welcome to Episode 2 of the Harry Potter Lexicon Podcast. My name is Steve Van Ark. I'm the creator and editor-in-chief of the Harry Potter Lexicon website. And before we start wandering through Harry Potter canon, we do need to talk about Pottermore. Um, I've been reading a lot of things online. I've been reading uh, the Twitter feed and a lot of the comments that people have been making. And something that strikes me is I think so many people are missing the whole point. Um, I see notes that it's going to be an online gaming site or... Um, complaining that it's just uh, e-book sales trying to make money and things like this, I don't think that's correct at all. Um, the most important aspect, as I'm looking at the, there's a video, for example, of the, uh, of the site in use, and I think we take Joe at her word, this site is mostly about reading the books. It's not about the films. It's not about selling things. Um, it's about reading, if you take a look at it, and I'll, I'll link the uh, the video onto the show notes um, on the on the show notes page, but I mean, we're talking about. An, a, an opportunity to kind of move through the books in sequence. Uh, what they call moments, which are not the same as chapters, they're kind of situations or set pieces, whatever you want to call them. And as you move through, you have the opportunity to explore a little bit more of, uh, of background information about the characters and things. Um, the the example was looking at the moment of the cupboard under the stairs and um, in that situation you could click on something to read more about the Dursleys and it told uh, about the background of how they met and things like this. Um, and also there was another little window on there talking about where the names came from. I mean, this is a, this is gold. This is fantastic stuff. And that has nothing to do with selling books. It has nothing to do with, with, uh, JK Rowling trying to make a buck or anything like that. As a matter of fact, as she's pointed out, this is free. You, you don't have to buy anything to do this, but, um, I think it's important to remember something, and this is coming from my own um, experience as a, as a person who ran a Harry Potter website for many years. When we first started creating our websites back in the late 90s, uh, the lexicon, I was starting to put it together in 1999, we were all, all of us website people, were a little bit living in fear. Uh, Warner Brothers had tried shutting down, or Warner Brothers or someone, whoever was, uh, was doing this at the time, uh, was shutting down websites, they were they were actively looking for people who were putting the words Harry Potter in the title of their sites for example and and sending uh, cease and desist letters and things and when that changed was when Jo started her own website and I, and you know I'm not just kind of talking f- from the outside in here i mean i was one of these website um people at the time and and i noticed and i'm sure other website people would say the same thing i noticed a distinct change in the in the attitude toward fan sites when uh when Rowling started her own site when she put the fan site awards on there um all of a sudden i had uh people from warner brothers that contacted me and kind of let me know that uh Uh, who to talk to if I needed anything or if I needed to get permissions and things. I'd already gotten permissions from Warner Brothers at that time uh, and from other copyright holders to use the material that I was using. But uh, before that, we didn't have anyone. I mean, I had a specific person that I was told I could contact. Uh, The whole climate changed at that point. And you have to remember that we're we're talking about a time when, when these major copyright holders really didn't know what to do with fan- Interest online. They didn't. They weren't sure what to uh, what to make of all of this, and how they were supposed to protect their copyright while they also allowed uh, fans to kind of play in that playground. Um, and, and really, I think if, if you look at what happened, Joe was really instrumental in creating an atmosphere of support and of kind of mutual enjoyment and things like this and i think we need to give her credit for that and also to say you know she is still that same person she is not she wasn't at that time uh just out to make a buck and she still isn't that's just not who she is and she has always been First and foremost, somebody who wants to protect the reading experience. And I think that's exactly what we see. If, if you watch that that uh, uh, video, you really can see uh, what I'm talking about. And something that I noticed is that the the picture that was on the screen for the cupboard under the stairs moment was not a scene from the film. It wasn't the film set reproduced. In fact, it's it's reversed. It's definitely not the film. And all I'm saying is that she's not just trying to tie in with the movie. She's not just trying to do anything except give readers a new opportunity to explore the books. So I think that's really important to remember as we get excited about this. Something else that struck me is I noticed a number of people really thinking that the whole um, announcement thing was, uh, I I saw the word anticlimactic, for example. Now, you know, think about the way the books were revealed. I mean first we would get this sort of hint that something was coming um, uh, toward the end it was on Joe's website there would be a coming soon Um, all we got was an announcement that a book was coming and then we would get teasers uh, with, and specifically I'm thinking of cover art and I don't know I, I was one of these people who was looking at that cover art and trying to analyze every little thing I remember doing this all the way back with Goblet of Fire and trying to figure out what the large ant-like creature was on the Mary Grand Prey cover and things like this I mean this is the same kind of sequence that, that we've always been going through when something new and big was coming along from, from rolling and i think to 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 think of it as anticlimactic i think is just uh, all i say is just wait just wait and see what's coming because everything that i see is something i I just cannot cannot wait i'm hoping whatever the the way is to be able to be an early user of this uh coming up on july 31 i certainly hope that i can be one of those people because i can't wait to dive into this and find out more information um okay let's let's chug ahead let's start talking a little bit about the Harry Potter canon um as I said before, I'm kind of started by looking at the, the lexicon book as a, as a kind of a reference. That was one of the things that I was looking at, which kind of gave me the idea to do this podcast. And, you know, last time I started talking about the letter A, started with Abbott. But, you know, before that, there's a whole list of sources of information. And a couple of them I wanted to mention. One in particular is the one that's listed in the lexicon as um, Y-I-L. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is because I get a lot of email from people saying, what is Y-I-L? And that is, the reference is to a television special, which is called J.K. Rowling, A Year in the Life, which was on ITV. Um, This was uh, a a wonderful look at J.K. Rowling, uh, kind of back at her life, at her kind of, her process of writing this is this is really an excellent piece there wasn't a lot of new canon in it but um it was uh th- there was some information especially she drew the family tree of harry and uh other people his friends and so which was a lot of information about their kids and things like this and i think that's where a lot of the questions have come um i'll put a link to the uh, to our notes about that from uh on the show notes, so if you 're curious and want to find out more, you can take a look at that. Another uh, source that I wanted to talk about is the daily profit newsletters. This is something which uh, uh, came kind of unexpectedly uh, maybe about five or six years ago. I was contacted by a fan in Britain who asked if I was familiar with the daily profits and i said well yeah that's that 's the the newspaper on uh, in the books and she said no the the actual daily profit newsletters and i I had to admit that I didn't know what she was talking about. As it turns out, um, back in about 1998, um, Bloomsbury uh, decided to create an official Harry Potter fan club. And uh, it was only in Britain, and if you, you had to pay, I don't know, a couple pounds or something to join this. And one of the things that you got when you joined it was four issues of The Daily Prophet. And this was actually written by J.K. Rowling, and, uh, I mean, these things are are absolutely wonderful. They are um, f- full of her humor and her kind of tongue-in-cheek writing and things like this. The headline on the very first issue uh, is, "'Muggles Not as Stupid as We Think,' says Ministry Report." And, uh, I mean, these are wonderful things. Unfortunately, they're not available uh, online or anything like that. Uh, after I got a hold of copies of this, I actually uh, contacted um, people at uh, Bloomsbury and, and uh, Rolling and so and to find out whether these are things I could put online. And they asked that I would not because people had, in fact, paid for them. And so it uh, wouldn't be fair to have that uh, put online, which, of course, I, I, I absolutely... Uh, Uh, agree with so i i do have a copy but i can't put them online but if you ever get a chance to look at these i do carry them with me so if you come to one of my talks uh, you can take a look at them there Uh, they're just a a a great read now they were actually written in 1998 1999 in fact the cover date on the first one is july 31st 1998 but the in terms of the storyline in terms of the timeline of the books they don't take place in 1998 which of course would be after uh July thirty one, nineteen ninety eight would be after the final battle in Book Seven, so they actually uh, chronologically take place approximately at the at Book Three, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, and you can tell uh, if you read them that there are things which are uh, kind of specific to that. Uh, That time period in the stories. Also there are some things which uh, clearly got changed as as Rowling did additional writing for example a lot of the uh, details of the Ministry of Magic were included for the first time in uh, Quidditch Through the Ages and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them which is 2000 and so um, some of that information is a little different in these newsletters and it's always great to look at things, uh, interviews, uh, things that Rowling wrote and keep in mind the chronological sequence of when these things came out, because you get a picture of her process of the writing that she did and the, in- the creating that she did. Um, a lot of things, of course, she had created before she even published book number one, and we know that. But there are many things which developed as the books uh, were were published, were written, and so uh, it is very interesting to kind of see that progression as things got fleshed out in this world of hers. Um, So those are two of the sources that we use for the lexicon. Again, uh, everything that uh, we include in the lexicon are things that we can verify are directly from J.K. Rowling. (laughs) when Pottermore comes uh, live, I know we're going to have a lot more information. uh, And so there's going to be a lot of uh, background, not only in the characters and things like this, but also part of her writing process that we're going to be learning about, which, again, just makes that site so exciting to to look forward to. Um, So let's take a look at letter A. We were talking about Abbott last time. And I I looked back in there again, and I had a bunch of notes for the first episode from the letter A, and we barely got anywhere in it. Um, But one thing I do want to talk about, and this is something which is one of those things which, when we first read it, kind of like when when Sirius is mentioned in book one, and it isn't until book three that you go, uh, oh, wait a minute, who... Who was that? I, I remember that I was <laughs> I was uh, out for coffee with uh, with uh, Nick Moline uh, last night, and he was saying that that uh, that when he was reading book three, he he realized that uh, Sirius Black had turned up earlier, and he was kind of going back in the books trying to find where that was. Um, a lot of us had that experience in book three, where where we suddenly realized that uh, all of this really tied together in a much more uh, thorough and exciting way than we'd realized. But I want to bring up, in, in the very first chapter of Prisoner of Azkaban, there's something called the Annual Daily Prophet Grand Prize Galleon Draw. And that's interesting. Uh, it's kind of a throwaway almost. But do you realize that that is one of the absolutely key events in the entire story? Because if, if Arthur Weasley had not won that money, then the Weasleys would not have gone to Egypt. And if they would not have gone to Egypt, there would have been no picture of them standing there, uh, by in front of the pyramids or whatever. Uh, The picture that ended up in the Daily Prophet, and if that picture had not ended up in the Daily Prophet, Sirius Black would never have seen it, which means he never would have left, uh, escaped from Azkaban to try to protect Harry. Which means that basically, the entire rest of the story, rest of the saga, would never have happened. It's it's just wild to think about the fact that this little throwaway story bit was actually, when you think about it, w- was actually a, a key moment in the uh, in the entire series. Um, and another thing, just interesting to note is, uh, it's uh, he won a thousand galleons. What a, we people have been trying to figure out how much a galleon is worth, looking at Harry's wand, he paid, you know a certain amount for that and and J.K. Rowling actually said in the comic relief interview that she did that a galleon is worth about five pounds um, and by the way, if you go on CNN, they do have a galleon to, to uh, a currency converter, and their value in there is wrong, so don't go with that. Uh, the value of a galleon, according to Rolling, is about five pounds. Now, I happened to check before I started recording this, and the current value of, uh, of a galleon in U.S. dollars is about $1.59. So Harry's wand costs just shy of $8.00. Uh, or excuse me just the the value of a galleon was about eight dollars so harry's wand is a little bit more than fifty dollars that's what it is so just so you know if you need to buy a wand you know how much you need to save up but uh, uh that's it's just it's interesting to see how so many things in the books have meanings and 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 not just the fact that say a name comes from a source but just these little details that she puts in have much larger meanings to the story itself. Another thing, and this also comes up in the letter A, there are place names which are just, again, just throw away, they just just kind of are tossed in there and we go charging along in the story, but they indicate something, uh, two of them in the letter A, Assyria, which is where great-uncle Algy got the Membulus Mimbletonia. Assyria doesn't exist. The same is true for Abyssinia, which is... uh, um, which is where the shrivel fig comes from these are both places which in at least for us muggles are archaic they are no longer names that we use for things however apparently the wizards do Uh, the wizarding world has a different take on geography you might say Uh, another way to see this is if you look at the places where the uh, the uh, professional quidditch teams play Uh, they're not in london they're not in birmingham they're in Tuts Hill, which is this tiny little town, and happened to be a place where J.K. Rowling, uh, one of the places which she lived when she was growing up, but places like Portree, which is you know up up in the Isle of Skye, Chudley, which is a little town in in uh, in the West Country, just these little tiny places are the locations of Quidditch teams, and you can say, well, of course, because they have to uh, they have to uh, um, be uh, away from the muggles so they're going to be in small towns but remember they can apparate so they don't absolutely have to be in any particular place um in order to get to their uh, their quidditch pitches and things like this but she uses these little towns again as a way to just remind us that the wizarding world is different it's skewed it's it's a it's it's you might say it's it exists in a slightly different um um, version of reality than our world. Um, you see this also, too, a lot, especially in the first four books, because uh, books five, six, and seven, there's a, there's a d- marked difference in the tone um, from, from the first four. There's a lot more whimsy in the first four and a lot more of these kinds of references. But you'll notice that uh, in the first four books, you'll find a lot more of these references to, to, um, uh, to this sort of whimsical connections to what we in the Muggle world might consider folklore, so, for example, there will be a reference to. Well, this is from the Daily Prophets, Actually, one of the headlines is the fact that the uh, the Loch Ness monster, which is a kelpie, uh, is becoming a problem for the Ministry of Magic because they are the responsible for keeping it hidden, and a uh, kelpie, as kelpies will, uh, keeps trying to be seen, and so Muggles keep spotting the Loch Ness monster. And what is the? What are the? What's the? Ministry of Magic going to do about it. So this idea in in Rowling's Geography of the Wizarding World is that all of the bits of the Wizarding World kind of coexist with the Muggle world and every so often Muggles get a little glimpse of it and the, uh, those little glimpses are the things that we muggles think of as um, the Loch Ness monster or the Bermuda Triangle, which comes up again in the Daily Prophets as a as a destination for one of the terror tours uh, travel agency on in uh, uh, Diagon Alley. And those are just examples again of the way that the the things which we look at as being not real folklore, urban myths and legends and things are actually just little glimpses of the of the wizarding world that that we get. One more little tiny detail, um, which, and this struck me as, again, as I'm looking through the letter A, and it's fun to do this because you get everything just sort of all thrown together and, and little details jump out and you think, oh, oh that's right. Um, one of the notice w- notes was for the anti-gravity mist. And that's the thing in the uh, Goblet of Fire, where uh, where Harry is going through the maze. And of course, for the for the film, they created a maze which actually closed in, which is a, a great visual picture of the danger of this thing. But when Rowling wrote it, she used a very different kind of an idea, and this was actual little magical traps, and one of them was this anti-gravity mist where Harry stepped into it and suddenly up was down and down was up and is hanging uh, so the sky was above him and things. I would have really liked to have seen that. Uh, there there are things like this in the maze that that I wish we could have seen. I also would have loved to have seen uh, so many of the things, that the Im- incredibly imaginative things that, that Rowling came up for, uh, in the battle in the ministry of magic oh I would have loved to have seen the, the the death eater with his head turned into a little baby head and things like this and of course when they're making the film they've got to do everything much more compact much shorter and things in order to to keep the story going but oh I certainly wish we could have seen that that would have been that would have been amazing so um, we'll move on to talk a little bit about I think I mentioned last time I started reading Philosopher's Stone again from the very beginning and just little things jumped out at me and i I brought up a couple of these mysteries, the things that, like the the history of Quirrell, for example, and when exactly he was a a, a, a professor of what at Hogwarts and things. And a couple of other things occurred to me. These aren't maybe quite as big, but um, the 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 what I consider in the first few chapters of the book is something that I, I often refer to myself in my notes as the vision theme. And you'll notice as Harry uh, moves from being almost totally muggle to gradually sort of catching a glimpse of uh, of the wizarding world. He sees people in the street, but then um, more and more he starts to notice things and he starts to see things. And this happens all the way through chapter 2, which is, of course, at the end of chapter 2 is when... Uh, uh, Hagrid, uh, or through when, when Hagrid appears, which is chapter three, actually w- at the end of that chapter. But what happens is Harry gradually starts to be able to see more and more. It's like it's like his his eyes get opened a little bit step by step through those chapters, um, and it's interesting to see the way that that happens to the point where when he gets to Diagon Alley, he can actually see the Leaky Cauldron, where he's pretty sure that nobody else can, just he can and and Hagrid can. And it's fun when you're reading these things again. Have read them many, many times. But as I read them through, and as I look at this, it's fun to see these and spot these little, uh, these little things, which are are uh, kind of the way that Rowling wrote it to kind of gradually have Harry see more and more, and along with him, we see more and more as we as we progress through. Um, another thing, as you're reading, as I'm reading this, I, I constantly am thinking back to. Chapter Thirty-Three of the Deathly Hallows, the 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 Princess Tale, as we hear, um, kind of Snape's history through all of this. I know that in my talks, um, I've repeatedly said that the Harry Potter series, the entire set of seven books, number one, has to be seen as one long story. Um, The films break them up very much into one little tale and then another little tale, very episodic, and yeah, of course that's inevitable, but. In order to really understand, you need to look at the entire series as a set of seven books, but as a seven, almost seven chapters in one long story. And so if you look at that, uh, oh, and, and I was just going to say, I look at this as really being um, the, the story of Snape told through Harry's eyes, Snape is really the main character of the books. And so you when you read chapter 33 of Deathly Hallows and you find out kind of where Snape's connections were through all of this, and then you go back and read Philosopher's Stone and you start from the beginning and you're reading all the way through and keeping in mind Snape's, where where Snape was, where, where Dumbledore was, their conversations, uh, what Snape's uh, 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 what was he actually doing? For example, the whole business with Quirrell and the troll that he let into the castle. Um, inside the story, we can look at that and we can say, uh, number one, how do you let a troll into a castle? When you think about the the, uh, the magical protections and things on this, but okay, let's let's go with it because Quirrell obviously has access to things like hot dragon eggs too. So, um, so we let uh, troll lets uh, Quirrell lets the troll in. The troll ends up on the third floor. Um, Snape heads for the third floor. What is Snape, what is he doing? Is he really checking on the stone? Is he really checking on Quirrell? When when you know that his number one uh, assignment, if you will, is to guard Harry, what was he actually doing? And you think about, too, I mean, there's little details like the fact that Harry runs into a group of Hufflepuffs on the stairs, where Hufflepuffs would never be on the stairs if they were going to their common room uh, so there are little things like that but that's just fun stuff to notice a couple of the things as we look at uh, philosopher's stone another thing that i that is, is the picture of two people that we see on broomsticks for, i think just about for the only time that we see them one of them being hermione who in the in the key room actually has to fly on a broomstick that's about the only time we ever see her on a broom um and, and the other is Snape, who referees a Quidditch match, of all things. I mean, can you imagine Alan Rickman on a broom? I, I just kind of have trouble putting that into my head. Uh, so Snape on a broomstick also. But, you know, interesting thing about that Quidditch match, um, the only Quidditch match in the entire series that doesn't start at 11 o'clock in the morning, that one starts so late in the day that an hour after the match, it's already getting dark. Well, think about this. The match ended, like, within minutes. One of the fastest, uh, you know, ever, I think. What if it had gone a normal Quidditch match length? They would have been playing in the dark. So why in the world did that particular Quidditch match start that late in the day? Well, uh, you know, again, we step outside the story, and we say because at the end of it, uh, Rowling wanted Harry to be able to follow Snape and Quirrell into the forest and overhear what he overheard. Um, And so, but... It's interesting because the the actual logic of the match inside the story is a little bit uh, a little bit odd to figure out. Um, basically, uh, reading *Philosopher's Stone* is you, you, reading it as part of the overall saga. There are so many parts of it which are just delightfully written. You can tell how much time she put into those uh, those various chapters and things. Um, but again, you have to see it in the light of Snape. What is he doing? What is Dumbledore doing? The big debate of whether Dumbledore was actually orchestrating everything. And um, I've had that conversation any number of times. And personally, I think he was. But uh, it's just so much fun to read that book again and put that into your mind and try to read from the Snape point of view instead of from the the Harry point of view. Oh, and one last thing. Speaking of point of view, that's probably, I think, and I'd have to go back and double-check, but I think that's the only place the only book where we ever leave harry's point of view during the during his story i mean we do of course in some chapters go to completely different places we go to you know the the uh, mansion in little hangleton uh, when at the beginning of um of, of book four we have we have places where where um we go to uh, Snape's home at the beginning of book six, things like this. Obviously, uh, there are places where we completely leave Harry's point of view, but in, uh, there are several places in book one where we actually, for a moment, are sitting with Ron and Hermione in the stands watching a Quidditch match instead of s- just being up uh, with Harry uh, and seeing everything through his eyes. And I think this is, I'd have to double check, but I think that this is the only place where that happens uh, is, is right here in, in a couple of times in book one. Well, that's about it for this time around. Thanks for joining me in another ramble through Harry Potter canon. Um, If you want to contact me, you can email me at steve.lexicon at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at lexicon underscore steve. Um, The show notes for this will be on, again, the Harry Potter Lexicon website, which is www.hp-lexicon.org. And if you go to that slash podcast, you'll find the show notes and other information. Um, you'll see also on there that there's a link to the Facebook fan page if you want to go there and kind of engage in more conversation about these things thanks again to Harry and the Potters for letting me use their music for the show. Uh, just want to mention too, if uh, I'm doing a couple of lectures coming up in uh, at the Grapevine, Texas uh, Library on July the 16th, 2011, if you're interested in coming out to that. One of them is the Welcome to the Wizarding World that I've done a number of times, which is where we explore some of the places in Britain, which are like the ones in the books. And then also, uh, and I'm also going to do the one that I have about herbology, where we talk about the Various magical plants in the Harry Potter world, uh, where they come from, and uh, sort of the background to that. So that'd be something fun to come to if you can. Again, that's July the sixteenth, two thousand eleven, right after the opening of Deathly Hallows Part Two, which is, of course, where we'll be the day before. Um, so again, this is Steve VanderArk. Thanks for listening. Explore the magic. <music>